Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. I am... Can I move this? Is it? Okay. My, uh, my dad freaks out every Sunday that I'm going to hit the drum uh, kit, and I want to let him know that uh, there's a good space between me and the drum set. Um, but I want some more space. Uh, anyway, I am uh, glad that you're here this morning, and uh, it is a new year. Uh, it is, uh, as Eric said, um, it, this is actually the 10th day of Christmas, so uh, the Lord's a-leaping. Uh, which is actually 10 is for um, the Ten Commandments. Uh, except when I looked that up, it was day eight, and maids of milking, the most I could find was, this is referring to women milking cows. And I was like, well, yeah. What does that have to do with Christmas? So I don't know. Supposedly, this is for the Ten Commandments. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we do often in the, uh, in the new year is we'll take the first few weeks of January and go through disciplines and practices. This is the time when we all recommit. This is the time when we all say, all right, now I'm changing. Now this year is going to be different. This is going to be, right? Um, and, uh, and so what we do in the new year is we often take time to go through some of the personal disciplines and practices, kind of a time for renewal of vows, which I think is, is good. We are uh, creatures of story and, and habit and ritual. So I think that that is uh, good um, and critical for us to continue to incorporate these practices, but it's also important for us to know how to use the weapons that God has given us, right? Uh, I had an old friend that, uh, do you remember P90X? Everybody remember P90X? It was an exercise thing. And uh, I had a friend who was really big on P90X. I was big on about P15X. Uh, I got about 15 days into the X, and then the X became X. Uh, but, but uh, this friend of mine, he did the whole 90 days, right? And it's this workout program, and you're supposed to do it for 90 days. And man, after 90 days, the dude was ripped. Like, he dropped 20 pounds, and, uh, and uh, it, I, I saw more of him than I cared to, but, like, I was impressed. 90 days, that, the, the transformation that took place. Um, but, but here's the thing, is after about two months following the 90 days, the 20 pounds were mostly back on. Uh, the six-pack had mostly been reconverted back to a two-liter. And like he, it was... Now, I only did 15, so it's not like I'm sitting here rejoicing in my consistency. Um, but either way, what we need to understand when we make these resolutions or these commitments is we need to make sure that we distinguish between the goals and the strategies, Right? And so when we talk about these disciplines and practices, we need to make sure that we distinguish between goals and strategies. The goal is not for you to read through the Bible in a year. Yes, read the Bible. If you can read it through in a year, that's fantastic. But that is not the goal. The goal is for you to know and experience and trust Jesus to become more like him, to understand his word and how he's acted throughout history, to see the way that he works and moves, Reading through the Bible is a strategy unto that goal. And we have to be careful that we don't confuse those things. I'm going to say something 
else, and, and, and hear me on this. Let me finish before you call me a heretic and get up and leave. The goal of Christianity is not to stop sinning. Sometimes we say, if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to stop sinning. That's not the end goal of Christianity. Okay? Now, don't hear me saying, you know, sin that, that grace may increase. Uh, but the goal of Christianity is to know and trust and be transformed into the image of Jesus. A byproduct of that is that the places that we used to turn for comfort and hope and approval and power and affirmation and all those things, that those voices become less and that the voice of God becomes louder. Okay? The byproduct is sin may have less control, but the goal is not to just stop sinning. That, that's confusing. Okay? The strategy is fighting against those sinful temptations to trust God more. Uh, and so this year, it's the year of 2021. We're going to look at various practices uh, the first few weeks, but it's going to be a little different this year. We're going to take the first few weeks of January. I feel like this is like the big reveal. We're, we're going to take the first few weeks of January, and we're going to look at the disciplines and practices of suffering well. Okay, nobody got up and left. Good. Um, unless, I don't know how many, t did the count go way down on the YouTube channel? All right, everybody just quit. All right. Um, we're going to look at, this is a, a lot of this outline will be taken from uh, Tim Keller's book, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, which I find tremendously, tremendously helpful. Um, but we're going to look at the idea of suffering well, suffering unto hope. Now, you might be thinking, Ugh, still? Didn't we just get through all that? Didn't we just, it's a new year. Can't we start? Why are we still talking about this? And let me tell you, that's why. That's why Western culture is not in any way equipped to suffer well. And, and sadly, perhaps even more than that, the church from Western culture, uh, Christianity that's been wrapped up in Western culture is probably the least equipped to handle what Jesus said to expect. In this world, you will have trouble. So, for a multitude of reasons, processing the year that we just went through. Um, and hear me, I, this, I'm, not, I'm, I'm hoping this week isn't like heavy. I want it to be helpful. But in processing the year that we just went through, uh, preparing for the year ahead and the stress and the anxiety, the capital T trauma, the lowercase t trauma of, of uh, those things that, that will be coming, um, not ignoring people that have been greatly impacted and affected by the last year, even if you may not have been, we're going to take a few weeks and we're going to look at how to suffer well and therefore how to hope well. And so the next three weeks, we're going to look at walking, weeping, and waiting as we talk about suffering well. So this week, we're going to look at the spiritual discipline and practice of walking with God uh, even in the times of pain and suffering. And for this, we're going to look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right? So the setting for this story is, is primarily the first three chapters of the book of Daniel. Um, and it's important that you know the historical background of the book of Daniel and what's taking place here. Um, <clears throat> the uh, Judah, which was the southern tribe, has just been conquered uh, uh, Babylon has a new king in charge, Nebuchadnezzar, and he is, he's a pretty big deal. He's making some moves. He's pretty powerful. He's restored the, king of, uh, the kingdom of Babylon, um, and he has 
wiped out the temple. Israel had, Judah had entered into great sin. He wiped out the temple and he took uh, the people of God into captivity. And <clears throat> culturally, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they were Chaldeans. Chaldean culture had an interesting way of assimilation. They did not wish to wipe you out completely. They wanted you to have a whole lot of freedom with ultimate allegiance <clears throat> uh, given to the state. So as long as you worship the king above anything else, you're free to practice your religions, your practices, your whatever else. <clears throat> and so what, uh, what he would do then is... Nebuchadnezzar sent out word. He said, I want you to take some of the young influencers, the guys with minimum 20,000 followers on the Insta. Is it Graham or in Instagram? I'm lame. Um, <clears throat> uh, and I want you to bring them in uh, and they're going to eat what I eat. They're going to drink what I drink. They're going to spend three years under my teaching. And then in three years, they will be given responsibility throughout the kingdom. This is how he assimilated. Not a bad plan, Right? And so he sends these young guys in, or he sends his guys out and pulls in these young influencers, most of whom who fell within the divine lineage of uh, the kingdom of Judah and the kingly lineage. And so uh, four of the guys that he brought in, Daniel, who received the, Cal uh, the Chaldean name of Belteshazzar, and then his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who received the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there were two things that these guys did. They honored the king. They honored Nebuchadnezzar, the guy that just took over their kingdom. They honored him. They were good and faithful and loyal servants. And secondly, they honored God more. Okay? They honored the king, but they honored God more. Here's how that works in the first few uh, chapters. They were, they were brought to Babylon. They were given the order to, be, to eat the same food the king ate and to drink the same wine that the king drank. And Daniel said, I'm not going to do that. That's going to, uh, that will defile me. He told the eunuch that was in charge of him, I'm not going to do that. And what the eunuch says to him is, okay, Daniel, here's the deal. If you don't do that, I'm in trouble. The king will not receive this well. My life may be in danger. If he notices that you're not eating and you're starting to lose weight and all this stuff, that's going to be bad for me. And you know what Daniel does? He's not a jerk about it. He's not like, I don't care. That's what you get for serving pagan gods. Daniel says, here's the deal. Give us vegetables and water. Do it for 10 days and just watch. And so he does it. And Daniel and his friends are more healthy and they actually gain weight. Now, there's, a, there's a Daniel diet now and I, I won't get into it too much, but Daniel actually gains weight. I, it's, I've heard it's a healthy thing. Um, but... And, and so they're good, and they're respectful, which is pretty cool. Um, and then uh, you get into chapter 2, and, and Nebuchadnezzar uh, has a dream. And nobody in the kingdom can interpret the dream, and so, and so he's going to put them all to death, uh, which is a bit irrational. Uh, but Daniel is able to interpret the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, uh, Daniel wishes to stay in the service of the king, but he puts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in charge of various uh, uh, areas, uh, regions of the government because, the, because he is able to interpret the dream. Um, and at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar makes this confession to Daniel, surely your God is above all gods. 
And you're like, man, that's powerful. This is one of the most powerful kings in history. And he just says, surely your God is above all gods. And then comes chapter three, no transition whatsoever. We don't hear anything that happens. We don't hear anything of how it got to this point. But chapter three, right off the bat, Nebuchadnezzar is like, you know what? I'm going to build a golden image. and I'm going to have everybody bow down and worship it. And you're like, you just got done saying, all right. So here we go. This is Daniel chapter 3. This is where we're going to be at in this story. Uh, Daniel chapter 3, we're going to go all the way from verse 4 to 18, but I am going to skip a verse in there just because. Um, Chapter 3, starting in verse 4. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music... You are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. A couple verses later, verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every type of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? If you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bad pipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is this God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't need to be contentious. We don't need to argue. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is blatant, intentional persecution uh, in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, It was suffering because they were honoring God. It wasn't because they were jerks. It wasn't because they had sinned. It wasn't because they wanted to maintain their personal freedoms or create some kind of persecution complex. It was because they would not bow down to worship King Nebuchadnezzar or his gods. And they knew full well the consequences. I'd be curious as to our response. If this was present day, if we saw this in the news, I'd be very curious to read the comment section. Right? How would we respond to these guys? How would we look at them? Well, it's their own fault. 
Um, I grew up often, like, uh, for me, it was the KGB, right, that they were going to somehow kidnap me and, and put, me, put a gun to my head and say, deny the Bible or die. Uh, and so that was, the, that was the mindset I grew up with. Um, <clears throat> but with these guys, they, they weren't putting anybody else's lives in danger. They just, they, just their own. And, and I wonder how we would, what our response would be. Would we wait and try to find out their political affiliations and what their angle was? Um, would we try to find out the color of their skin or their religious backgrounds? How would we interpret this type of suffering? How would we either somehow lay blame or alleviate blame or, or whatever? Um, <clears throat> in our day, when it comes to the idea of suffering and affliction, we don't talk much about enduring suffering or affliction, we talk about ways to manage, to overcome, to cope, to deny, to keep that head up, to think positive. Most of our social political views are ways of blaming one side or another for my suffering or for their suffering. If they would just be different or do different. Our theology, here's the big thing, our theology much of what we've believed and much of what we've been taught about the God of the Bible actually more has to do with not suffering. There's a lot of different, I read up on just historical and various religious and earthly views of suffering. And I think we can see all of these. There's, there's room for them, but they all fall vastly incomplete. Uh, there's suffering as divine punishment. Um, you read through scripture, a lot of times people thought if you were sick or you had some kind of deformity or whatever, that that was a divine punishment. Um, one of the schools that we, that we support in Beirut, Lebanon, this Christian school, they pioneered special education uh, in the late 80s and into the 90s. And for most Muslim schools, uh, they did not deal with special education because there was a stigma, there was a shame, there was kind of a divine punishment. So you just didn't talk about it. It wasn't this overt, like, you've obviously done something wrong, but they didn't ever navigate those waters. And so this Christian school in Beirut started doing um, <clears throat> uh, special education. And what they noticed is a ton of Muslim families started bringing their children to these schools. And then this Christian school got to serve other Muslim schools by helping them in the early, mid-2000s develop programs for special needs students. I think that's fantastic. <clears throat> um, there is suffering as a reward, uh, that the more you suffer, there will be some kind of divine payoff. Right, this intentional form of always um, being uh, in suffering, if we, if we seek and experience great suffering, there will be a, a higher reward in the afterlife. Uh, and that avoids, I think, measures of stewardship that we shouldn't intentionally seek after suffering, but also nor should we neglect the suffering of others. That's not an option that we have to go, well, God's obviously shaping them for something better. That's, not, that's certainly not the call. Um, there is, uh, this is a more Buddhist approach of suffering as craving, but I think we can see this influencing in Christianity, uh, that we suffer because we crave certain, we have these certain desires and these certain cravings, and so the, the goal is to suppress or to deny those cravings. 
uh, Christianity would say, well, our ultimate craving is found in God. And when, when he meets that, then everything else falls into place. But there's a suppression uh, that holiness or wholeness is more about denying uh, cravings of pleasure. Um, <clears throat> and then there's a more humanistic approach that we probably see more in our day, where the ultimate end goal of mankind is to alleviate all suffering in the world. Right? And that sounds wonderful, and that sounds noble, and it sounds good, uh, and it's impossible, A, and B, um, that has been, honestly, that has been the forefront of a whole lot of bad movements. Because who's to decide what people that have suffered should not suffer? <clears throat> and then is there recompense for others? Uh, I mean, that's the heartbeat of Marxism. Um, it, it, it's, it's tough when you start to determine uh, how that plays out with certain groups and with certain peoples. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Because it doesn't just, well, we'll all start, stop suffering. Here again, there's good and there's, there's, we see all of these at, in certain levels in, in, in Scripture and in history, but they're, they're vastly incomplete. <clears throat> um, how many of you have thought that when something bad happens to you, you lose a job or something goes bad, that it's probably because of that one sin that you can't seem to get rid of? Has anybody ever thought that? Um, or, uh, and I'm not talking about consequences. I'm not talking about staring at your phone and then going, God, why did I get into a car accident? Um, or what about this? How many of you have been taught, maybe implicitly or explicitly, that if you do X, Y, and Z, then your life will be, well, I guess if you do A, B, and C, your life will be X, Y, and Z, right? If you don't do these things and do these things, then your life will be good. Anybody, like, there's, and, it, and there's room for that in Scripture for sure. Um, or perhaps, like the book of Job, that when we see that something tragic is happening in other, somebody else's life, then it's obviously because they have done something wrong. They just need to. Those people need Jesus so that I can get back to my life ignoring him. Even more, like, the constant feeling of, of guilt, where you can't enjoy some of the good gifts of God without the fear of the rug being pulled out from underneath you. That's another element of suffering. That's kind of that suffering is the reward. Things are going too well right now. God's going to punish me here sometime soon. Uh, one of my favorite books, <clears throat> uh, it's actually a great book to listen to on Audible. And a uh, quick shout out to Mike Fine. He'll know why I'm talking about it. But it's called The Shepherd's Life. Uh, and um, it is not a Christian book, but the parallels are uncanny. Uh, and um, it tells three different stories. It tells the story of uh, the land where this guy shepherds, the Lake District in England. It tells the story of his family from generation to generation as he enters in as shepherds. And he doesn't see all of history culminating in him. He sees as that he contributes a verse as time goes on, which is actually refreshing. He's under no delusions that he is the one that's arrived. Um, and then it tells the story of just shepherding in general and what life is like in a shepherd. And to tell that story, it goes through the four seasons of the year. And good grief, if this doesn't just tell the story of life and of following Jesus. 
you have the fall. The fall is payoff time when all the hard work, the culmination of the time and the effort that you've put in, you go to market. And at market, you sell the wool. You look to buy young tups, which are male uh, sheep, uh, to come in and, and to they will be fertile and they will produce good sheep and shepherds. And it's a very exciting time uh, <clears throat> uh, to go to market. You have the winter. The winter is hard. There's not more work to do in the winter, but everything takes a bit longer. And it's just hard. And the sheep can be out grazing in one minute and a blizzard coming up. And it, it is life-saving that you have to get out. And, and he tells one story of driving out on his four-wheeler, waving to his neighbor because that's the last guy that's going to see him before he goes over the hill. And he's got to find the sheep before they get loaded over with snow, potentially giving them pneumonia or crushing them or killing them. The winter is long and can seem hopeless at times, but every winter thus far <clears throat> has been followed by spring. Spring is the time of new life. Spring is when the ewes give birth. And it's exciting, but it's daunting because new life requires immediate and full attention. And it, you have to be there. And they're not waiting and checking if you're okay. When they're ready to give birth, they give birth. And he says, you got about 20 days of just all hands on deck, ready for the next one at any time. And then there's summer. And summer starts with gathering the hay. And the reason you gather the hay is to prepare for the next season ahead. Summer is a time when the sheep, by and large, can kind of take care of themselves. So there's a little bit of freedom of that. But it gives you time to store up and equip. Got time to repair the fence that took a hit this last year. Time to put the roof back on the barn. Time to kind of kick back and relax and build up energy uh, so to be ready for the next season ahead. The part of the countryside that he lives is called the Lake District. And, and it, was, it was strictly for shepherding up until about 60 to 70 years ago when economy provided more than just provision. Now it provided a place for vacation. And so the Lake District over the last 50 to 70 years has been developed. All of a sudden, it's appreciated for its views and its recreation. Uh, he tells about people that have written stories, all these books written about the Lake District. And he's like, I wonder if any of them have been here after Labor Day. Several years ago, <clears throat> I went through this book. It was a few guys from the church. And, and as we talked about the seasons and what each season was for, the first question that was asked uh, about this was, how do we position our lives in such a way to where we get to live mostly in summer? So let me tell you something. Whether it's progressive or conservative does not matter. Welcome to Americanized Christianity. Where God and economy become our servants to help us avoid the hard seasons. To avoid suffering. Where we love the sheep and we love watching the shepherd and we love it's so neat and cool until they go across the road and block our way of getting to the lake and, block us and make us late for dinner. And then they're just a nuisance in their old land. The people who long to dwell in summer spaces only and who only visit the land 
for vacation are called tourists. They are not called citizens. And the reality is this, all four seasons are a part of this life, they're a part of following Jesus, and the end goal of following Jesus is not to get your disciplines and your practices and your sins in such a way to where you avoid suffering. It is to trust and find hope in the presence of God and to worship him in every season. God, through his word and through his action, has given us so much more, so much higher and deeper ways to actually endure suffering in this age. That we see Jesus as savior and example, uh, that, that uh, Christianity is both the way of suffering, that in this world you will have trouble. Um, Jesus is our example, he lived perfectly and he still experienced deep rejection and suffering. But it also does not lead to despair. It is also that of profound hope. Hope doesn't deny the reality of suffering, ours or others, but it fights and claws and moves toward the hope of the resurrection that is beyond the suffering of this world. And so we move back into the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and what we see is this bold proclamation. We know, O king, we know that God could remove our suffering and save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to a false hope or a false God. We won't bow down to the state. I believe that these men had two very full present realities in front of them. Hear me. I don't know anybody that stands in front of a furnace and is like, we're cool. All right? So don't read that. Don't read that as if they were like, no biggie. Their hearts were pounding. I'm going to tell you that. And I believe that they had two very full present realities in front of them. God can do miraculous things, and he could certainly somehow rescue us from this impending doom. And yet, he is under no obligation to do things the way that we think he should. Either way, we will trust him. Honest confession, how many times does God get my ultimatum? How many times do I switch this around just enough? God, do things my way, or I don't know if I can trust you anymore. The only thing I have on you is my belief. And so if you don't do these things, you are mighty to save. But if you don't, I might just stop believing in you. A question to ponder for my soul, for your soul, is my heart about God's agenda or have I made God about my heart's agenda? Suffering is never something that a follower of Jesus is to go looking for. Um, It's not ever something we're called to manufacture. But we're also never called to avoid it or stiff upper lip it or deny its reality. When we face suffering of any kind, 
the promise that we have is that God will be present and will somehow use it in a redemptive way. And so let me be careful here that we don't attach the word capitalism to the word redemption. This doesn't mean that God's not going to redeem it for our financial gain or our material gain. That's possible. <clears throat> or God will never redeem it in such a way that we don't have to trust him anymore. God, just get me through this, and then I'll be free to do my own thing again, right? Give me today my lifetime supply of bread so I can take care of it and you can go worry about the sinners. First Peter, early on in First Peter, which is a great book on, on this type of stuff, First Peter 6 through 7, well, 1, 6 through 7, he tells the church, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering will make reality what might be hypothetical in your mind. <clears throat> when we endure suffering and don't just look to manage it or deny it, God has, it has purifying effects. Talks about impuring, uh, purifying uh, gold. This, that the gold will, that what is precious will survive the intense heat and only be made beautiful. This is the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, Peter likens Christians with saving faith in Jesus to gold filled with impurities. Mixed in with our faith in God are all sorts of competing commitments to comfort, power, pride, pleasure, and self. Our faith is largely abstract and intellectual and not very heartfelt. We may believe cognitively that we are sinners saved by God's grace, but our hearts actually function on the premise that we're doing well because we're more decent or open-minded or hardworking or loving or sophisticated than other people, than those people. We have many blemishes in our character. We're too fragile under criticism, too harsh in giving it. We're bad listeners ungenerous to people we think foolish, too impulsive, too timid and cowardly, too controlling or unreliable, but we are largely blind to these things even though they darken our own lives and harm other people. Then suffering comes along. Timidity and cowardice, selfishness, self-pity, tendencies toward bitterness and dishonesty, all of these impurities of the soul are revealed and drawn out by trials and suffering just as a furnace draws the impurities out of unrefined metal ore. And finally, we can see who we really are. And like fire, working on gold, suffering can destroy some things within us and can purify and strengthen other things. Or not, depending on how we respond. Heading back to the three men thrown into the furnace. Uh, ironically, I, anybody else learn this as a kid? <laughs> it's kind of, you're reading, I'm reading through it now, I'm like, I learned this as a kid. That's weird. Here's what happened. The re, here's the rest of the story. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He orders the, the furnace turned up seven times higher. The soldiers that took them up there were killed by the flames. That's how hot it was. <clears throat> but this is what takes place in uh, Daniel chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. 
he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Common interpretation throughout history is that this has been the presence of God in the midst of the furnace with these men. And not just simply an angel of the Lord, but what for Christians for 2,000 years have seen this as the only way for a holy God to be in the presence of sinful men and actually dancing with them among the flames, the one that looks like a son of the gods, uh, the understanding has been that this has been Jesus himself. Holy and unblemished, yet in the presence of sinful men, comforting and sustaining. Isaiah 43, 1 through 5 says, Thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, which is the most common greeting that God gives in the Bible, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Fear not, I am with you. <clears throat> as individuals, and even more so as a people, we have one hope, we have one Savior. And the promise that we see, even literally see in this story, is not that God is never going to allow us to suffer. His promise is that he will be present with us. The hope of the gospel is not that Christ entered the, uh, the, the hope of the gospel is that Christ has entered the ultimate furnace for me and for us so that we know that we can trust him to enter every other trial, every other furnace with us. In Christ, we are never alone. Our hope is not that God will spare us from suffering on this earth. Our hope is that God is always present in every suffering and that ultimately suffering will not have the last word. That God can redeem it and there is always hope beyond it. So individually, we have the promise of God's presence in everything that we do. Corporately, as a community of believers, then we have the opportunity to live that out and encourage one another with that truth, to remind each other of the presence of God, to bear the image of God to one another, to remind each other that God will never, never leave us. So if somebody comes to you with their suffering, that we don't have to say, you know, you should really get over that. We don't have to know the complex answers. We don't have to necessarily know the psychological breakdown of why they're enduring this, this, and this, and this. What we can do, and we don't have to give answers, and we don't have to silver line things. And, and um, I, even talking about this, you know, I got a response from an old friend that's like, you know, 2020 wasn't totally bad. There was actually a lot of good, too. And I'm like, I'm not a silver liner. I love you. We don't even have to have specifically answer, uh, specific answers. What we can bear to one another is this. 
I'm here. And I want to remind you that God is here. All right, so the practical. How do we practice? And this will be quick, I promise. How do we practice walking with God in pain and suffering? You ready? The big reveal? We walk with God in every season of life. And we practice that. Submitting to him, trusting him. That that does not lessen, that does not decrease our full participation in life. The goal of Christian, Christianity is not to somehow become stoic to where nothing affects you, like you're a rock or an island. That is bitterness. That is not Christianity. We'll look more at that next week and how we got there. We're not called to be stoic. Our participation in the sufferings of this world actually deepens. Sorry, it does. This is not a feel good. We actually begin to see more and deeper into why the world is the way it is. And that should grieve us and help us to participate even more in the sufferings of this world. But also even more in the hope of the world to come. It ups our joyous celebration and our mournful weeping. The promise of mourning is that we will be comforted. But when we walk with God in all of life, it consistently grows in us through every circumstance our dependence on him. Remember, the goal of the Christian life is never to become less dependent on Jesus, ever. So the personal practices that we usually focus on every January, prayer, meditation, study, and fasting. My hope and plan uh, is to do a class on these uh, starting in February where we can learn more how to implement these and what these look like in an ongoing way. Um, But these practices are gifts from God. They're given to us to help us envelop the entirety of our lives with the presence of God, to know him as he's made himself known, to see him at work in the world, to trust him, to come to him, to let his promise and presence marinate into our bones, and then to feast on what God alone provides. And that we practice these things on and on, ongoing, And then if the world falls apart again, (laughs) this is usually what we're left with, and that ain't bad. So I have two things that I want you to do this week. I can't turn off texting on this, but I just got a text from my friend, my pastor friend, asking me how my sermon on suffering is going. (laughs) I thought that was funny. Uh... All right, two things that I want you to do this week. First, if you've picked out a Bible reading plan, awesome, do it. Um, I'm not a fan of ones that jump around and just kind of hit and miss. I, actually, I love the, uh, the Bible reading plan from uh, the Bible Project. Uh, it gives you a video every once in a while, and it goes through. Chronological plans are fantastic. I would, uh, but, but if you started a Bible reading plan, keep reading it. But here's one thing that I want you to read this week specifically. I want you to read the story of Joseph from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50. You're gonna, there's going to be some other weird stories mixed in there. If you can get through some of those and just be like, all right, I'll ask Trey about that. That's probably better, and I probably won't have very many good answers. There's weird stuff that happens. But the story of Joseph spans from Genesis 37 to 50. If you can read it all in one fell swoop, that's great. Uh, or if you can take it three chapters at a time or whatever, but find some time this week to read through the story of Joseph. 
And what I want you to do is I want you to enter into that story, the ups, the downs, the fear, the confusion. What must he have felt like when he was faithful in serving God and now this? What, how in the world does this happen? And I want you to see and experience how does God redeem the suffering in the life of Joseph. And if you're curious, I'll get you. Yes, he is arrogant and prideful at the beginning. All right? So if you're like, well, he was innocent. Eh, you don't go tell your brothers they're all going to bow down to you in a, in a humble way. <laughs> all right? So it's okay to, to not have all that put in place. The second thing that I want you to do this week is I want you to intentionally, be intentional about practicing the presence of God in every aspect of your life this week. And you're rising up and then you're going to bed. When you're driving, when you're, uh, when you're making meals or when you're on a walk, I want you to presume that he is with you. Presume that he is listening to you and is right there. Talk to him. Converse with him. Go back through your day in the morning or in the evening. This is called prayer of examine to actually look and see where did I see and experience the presence of God today and where did I not? Did I ignore it? Did I just miss it? Was I willfully... Uh, uh, removing myself from his presence. Um, you can do this with a friend or a spouse or kids. Uh, talk about uh, where you were keenly aware of his presence and where you either ignored it or forgot. And then I want you to take time. Thank him that he is always there, that his presence is always there. Ask for forgiveness. If you see the times in your day that you ignored him or forgot him, Presume upon his mercy and grace that he is wanting and willing to restore, that it's not this shameful thing that he goes, yeah, I, I, I wanted you to see me there. And then say, God, can, can, we, can we work on this tomorrow? And he'll say, you bet. Sleep well. I'll stand guard. Seek and enjoy. Be intentional about seeing the presence of God this week that he is always with you. Presume that, assume that he's there, that he will never leave you. Feel and know his presence in good times and, is bad, and in bad. And at the end of the week, don't be like, all right, don't be like P90X and at the end of the week, like, all right, got that, what's next? This would be a great habit, okay, to develop. But at the end of the week, look back and see if, do you notice a change in anything? Are you more aware of God's presence in the small, seemingly mundane times of life? Has anything changed about how you do things, about your fears, or about your pride? See if God's presence has been refining in how you think about others, or how you think about yourself, or how you think about the world. So this week, we're going to practice walking with God. All right? Let's pray. God, your presence is the promise that we have. That, that is, it's not that you're necessarily going to come along and fix all of our problems. One day you will. But so many of our problems are rooted in the fact that, for me, that I'm not always fully aware that you are present, that you're promised to your people, you will never leave or forsake. I get, I hear again, I get that cognitively. But man, when furnaces come, I'm quick to try to take over the reins. And even worse, when things are going well, I'm quick to forget that you are the giver of all good things. So help me to see in good times and in bad that you are present. All seasons of life. What 
an astounding promise. Having just in the last few years, having experienced deep friendship, maybe for the first time in my life, and seeing that I can endure a whole lot of things if I know that I'm not alone. And as the body of Christ, as your people, we have that promise both from you in this supernatural realm, but also from each other in this physical realm. That, those are all gifts from you. So may we practice walking in the presence of God that when we're alone, we're not alone. And when we are together, it is glorious. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.